So we carry forward. Weiyun, of course, insists that they share a cell, because... <sighs> y you figure a Vorta would be into something like that, right? Viewing porn, because he's fascinated by the ways in which different species mate. What's funny is this exact same not-quite joke would be later used by the Doctor over on Voyager. <sighs> Tuvok, Ponfar, yeah. Anyways, Damar is, of course, upset that they're losing territory, which makes sense. Um, if you think about the history of the Cardassian Union, territory is the only reason they've been able to pull themselves up, right? Like, as I've talked about many times before, the Cardassian Union was a mess at multiple points in its history, and it became a conquering power to strip mine and consume other planets' worth of resources in order to feed the, the homeland, right? Very simple concept there. Here's, here's the thing. In addition to that problem, well, the, the point that is made is that it's not actually Cardassian territory that's being given up. It's Dominion territory, because Cardassia is a member state of the Dominion. So you don't actually have a choice in whether or not you give up the territory. You just get to do it because it's not your territory to give up. You are an administrator that is allowed to control lands because you are a vassal state. Or a member state, depending on how you want to think of it. And I bring that up. Ironically, just today I was talking with Lore Reloaded about the Dominion and about how they are. They're, they're relatively okay with you as long as you do what you're told. And I agreed with him, but I added a sentence at the end of that, which is that uh, the problem is the Dominion itself isn't the problem, it's the founders. So let's move forward here a step. In this case, doing what you're told means giving away your own territory because it's technically not your territory to give up. Even if you may need that territory, strategically or otherwise, you may need the food or the water or the medical supplies or the, the whatever it supplies for your empire, right? Now let's add another niggle to this. All of that, I have a feeling Damar might have been willing to go along with, might have been coerced. The irony here is Weyun pushes too hard and too fast. He's basically given up dealing with the Cardassians. He's like, all right, let's, let's officially push the Cardassians down a peg and just get done with it, right? And that is a very Dominion perspective. So that might have been... What I'm trying to say is I think that might have been something that DeMar could have swallowed, but he wasn't even consulted. In fact, he wasn't even informed. Now, in... A typical Dominion state, excuse me, domain state of you know a, a multiple con con uh, congregation of multiple states which are part of the same entity. If they need to make concessions of the territory of one of its member states, then that member state is going to be told and consulted on the matter. They're going to get a say because they're part of the, the overall aggregate organization. And even if they are voted down and against, they're still part of the debate table, the negotiation table. They have a seat at the table. The Cardassians do not. And this is pushing too far. This is Weyun's critical mistake. He decides to just basically make them, nah, do what you're told, stomp, and then move on as if they're Jem'Hadar and they're just going to go along with it. He threatens Damar like four times in this episode alone. Meanwhile, Klingon marriage is viewed as a war. Insert your own joke. They're all good. But... What I find interesting about that culturally is that actually makes a lot of sense. 
that they would view it as a competition, that they would view it as some kind of contest between each other, a versus organization. Even though they do love each other and care about each other or whatever, the fact of the matter is that they still view it as a conflict, just a different type of conflict. I'm reminded of the Klingon lawyer several several seasons ago at this point, and the idea that he viewed legal battles as another form of conflict. I really like that perspective on the Klingons. It sadly doesn't come up all that often, but I've always loved the idea that making a, you know, solving a really good technical problem, constructing a particular type of ship or engine or weapon, um, curing a particularly difficult disease, that all of these things are ultimately battles. And that that kind of fits them into the Klingon mindset of constantly pushing themselves, of constantly trying to strive to succeed and conquer. In other words, looking at it in some way other than flatly, literally. Just food for thought, because I thought it was an interesting insight. Meanwhile, <laughs> um, meanwhile, Kai, Adami, Wind, Death, Doom is lounging in bed feeding grapes to Ducat. Yeah, okay, that's, that's, that's something I'm never going to be able to purge from my memory banks there. But one of the things I like about that is as they're talking, and, and he is continuing to kind of guide her in a particular direction, talking about prophecies and the Cisco and blah, 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 she mentions that the prophet's love is great, and so is their wrath. Now, first of all, as this and the previous episode indicates, she's never talked to the prophets. Ever. So I'm curious how exactly she would know that. Second of all, I've been studying the prophets for the past couple of years as I've been doing this series. I don't think they have wrath. At all. By all accounts, the prophets are pretty chill. <laughs> Interesting to think about, especially given what's about to happen. Meanwhile... Cassidy starts to see the issues with marrying both a major political figure and a major religious figure. That'll kind of shift in different directions later, but right now they just kind of lay that seed of, yeah, maybe you should have thought of that before you married basically the head of the local religion. Yeah, I mean, I know the Kai is technically the head, the political head, but the actual spiritual head of the religion is Cisco. So... And you'll notice, by the way, this episode does a great job of interchanging the dynamic between Cisco and Kai, uh, Kai Wynn, even though the two don't even interact at all this whole episode. Because he is, as I said, the spiritual leader. He is the one who is trying to be the moralistic center. She is the political leader who is trying to be the political center. And that comes up significantly in both of their stories as we're going through this final, you know, this final stretch here. <clears throat> Meanwhile, we cut to Esri and Worf bickering because it's com comedic, I guess. I don't know. I'm not sure what they were thinking with this one. I do have to admit I laughed, though, because Weyoun gets really close and taunts her, and then Worf breaks his neck. <laughs> What's funny is even Damar calls him out for that, overconfidence, because he's right. It doesn't matter what your situation is. You don't get yourself in arm's reach of the enemy. If nothing else, they may do what Worf did and not give a damn and just kill you. Even if they die, who cares? They're on the execution block. At least they got to take you with them. But no. Uh, Weyun, uh, eight? No, seven. Weyun seven dies. Good riddance. By the way, my least favorite of the Weyuns. 
Although I guess that's a bit much, but you know, whatever. And instead, we have Damar, who actually stops the Cardassians from retaliating, and he just has a good laugh at it. And then he gets all blunt and brusque, and I want you to pay attention to the lighting in that scene. In fact, I want you to pay attention to the lighting in every scene Damar's in. Just do me that favor, okay? Or at least remember it. Usually they do a trick. It's actually a very simple trick, but at the same time it's excellent to pull off. And Rene Abergenois directed this episode, and he did some good stuff with the lighting. Or he, whoever was in charge of the lighting, I shouldn't just give him. He did some good stuff with the camera. Whoever was in charge of it did good stuff with the lighting, because Damar is almost always shown like this. Now I know that probably doesn't look much with my current lighting setup, but that's because I don't have a light above me. But because I am slanted, my eyes, my fore, uh, my um, eyebrows here are basically putting the rest of my features into relief. So if I had a light strategically positioned above me, I would look like my face is in shadow right now. That's in direct contrast to if I lift my head by just a few degrees and start looking like this. Now again, I don't have a light directly above me, but this, with again the same lighting situation, would put my entire face into relief. Almost as if I had a light right in front of me. Keep that in mind. So, <clears throat> so Wayne's dead. Wayne 7 is dead. And then there's this really great thing. So we have a Paul Wraith vision. And I mentioned the camera work just a few seconds ago. There's this great bit where the camera zooms in on her. Then it zooms out and two people are sitting, standing there talking. And the camera zooms out on her. And then zooms out and there's two different people standing there. Very minor thing. All it requires is people willing to jump in and do their lines on, on cue. But it's, it's a nice effect. And it really adds to the uh, surrealistic nature of the vision. Good, good job. That's definitely on a, a René Bergenois. Which... <sighs> Sorry, I just... Mm. Anyways. <clears throat> yeah, moving on. The thing I want to talk about, though. As with last time, the Paw Wraiths are far more literal and blunt with their visions and their terminology. Their very sentence structure is different. Their word choice is different. And I started thinking about this. I have no idea if this was deliberate or not, but remember, the Paw Wraiths were ejected from the Celestial Temple, kicked out of the wormhole. And they've been stuck in these caves for however long. You, um... You ever wonder if it's the wormhole that provides the non-linear nature of the, power, of the, of the prophet a energy aliens and not their own innate nature? Because it would be interesting to speculate that the pirates are far more literal and linear because they have been forced into a linear existence for so much longer and they are far more acclimated to it. Just interesting to think about. Anyways, so, uh, she finds out, oh my god, it's the paw race. No, no, I must atone. Get out, get out. <clears throat> uh, actually, she doesn't say get out yet. Sorry, we're not there yet. Instead, we cut over to, again, the pacing of these episodes is phenomenal. We cut over to Damar, who is amused. Now, so there's this bit here. Where, first of all, he has a great line. Maybe you should talk to Worf again. <laughs> but the better part is Cardassia has become a substate of the Breen. All, so the Breen have access to all Cardassian information. They have, which, which is horrifying, by the way. They are the ones who are going to be in command of the central command hub of Cardassia. And all Cardassi Cardassian military leaders and the head of state, the dictator of all of Cardassia, that's Damar at the moment, is now a sub subordinate to the local representative of the Breen. Think about that. And I found myself wondering, why? Now, 
Obviously, we all know that long-term-wise, the founders always planned to screw over the Cardassians because the Cardassians launched the plan to kill them, and the and the uh, the founders have a nice long memory, and they have that whole you know uh, we need to live and control reality and screw you. They have no problem genociding a race if they think that that race is a threat to them. But why do this now? Why jump the gun on this? They still need Cardassian ports. They still need Cardassian territory. They still need Cardassian personnel and ship and supplies. They are still relevant to their war effort in this particular little corner of the galaxy. So why push so hard and so far to shove the Cardassians down? Now, the problem is the real answer is admittedly bad writing. They're doing it to push Damar so that Damar has his change of heart. But I do wonder what the in-universe explanation for that would be. I'm curious what you guys would think on that. So... <laughs> Esri and Worf try to escape, and they fail miserably. I've heard some people say that they only fail because Esri didn't leave Worf behind. I don't buy that. She stays, she stays behind, gets him up on his feet, and they hobble off. And that takes them maybe three or four seconds longer than if she had just bolted. And they're already surrounded on all sides, I might add, with people with guns. I don't think those extra seconds would have counted. So that's just a failed escape attempt. Okay. Meanwhile... I mentioned the soap opera thing. Um, there's this... Hmm, there's a... I, I, Esri is all, I'm totally in love with Bashir thing. I, I don't really buy that for a millisecond. I, I get it. I get where they're coming from it. But I really feel like it came a little bit too much out of left field. By contrast, Bashir's feelings for her have been well established. And, of course, he is just as confused as Worf is, because he was after Jadzia, and then kind of pulled back from Jadzia because of the whole, you know, genetic engineered, you know, trying to keep things hidden thing. And then Esri shows up, and she's available, and she, he's confused. And so we've seen that. That's already been an established part of Season 7. And her just kind of admitting in a dream that she loves Julian is just kind of okay. Bashir's confession is far more real for me. He sits there and he says, oh, you know, there's just, there's a, there's a, she's so ancient and yet so young and beautiful. And hey, He doesn't use the word beautiful. I forget his exact wording. Forgive me. He just meanders in his words, keeping the same kind of melancholic tone until finally he admits, I have no idea what I'm saying. And then he just looks at O'Brien with this kind of look, you know, and he gets up and leaves. That's a confession of love right there. I don't even know what I'm feeling. Because it's a big, con confused, convoluted mess. I, I know this sounds strange, but that works a lot better for me than, than her confession last episode. Small point. Kaiwin insults Dukat. Specifically, she insults his pride. These are affairs that you cannot possibly comprehend. One of the recurring, the pro arguably most recurring aspect of Dukat's character is his pride. Um, it's in fact something that is probably true even in this version of Dukat, the Pa Dukat. And I mention that because in that same scene, as she reaches out to the orb for the prophets to, you know, to get some kind of guidance on what the hell is going on, that's when he reveals the truth to her. Now, I'm not just some simple farmer, I am an emissary of the Pa Wraiths. I wonder if those two facts are connected. Either way, she freaks out, of course, and he he does some unpleasant things. And eventually, he pokes at, well, 
the parts of her that he knows she is most vulnerable at. Fear, sure. Pride. That's a big one. But most importantly of all, ambition. The very first scene we ever saw with Kai Wynn, it was before she was Kai, was her staging a frickin' assassination under religious guises in order to ensure her ascendancy. This is an evil woman. I'm sorry to say it so bluntly. I know they've tried to gray her out a bit, but I have always felt that she is a more evil entity in terms of her internal opinion and perspective than anyone else on the show, basically, with the exception of the really, really horrible stuff like, say, the Founders. And he actually flat out says, there's no reason to hide what you really are. You could have the adoration of the people and the power. You want both of those things. And that's funny because most versions of Dukat want both of those things too. You can just go on, go back to them, live the rest of your life in Sisko's shadow. So she's sitting there begging the prophets to acknowledge her. I kind of hinted at my own opinion on this last episode, but I'm curious of your thoughts. Why do you think they never respond to her here, completely lock her out here? I'm actually quite curious of your thoughts on this, because it's kind of a key point, and it, it basically pushes her even further down the path she's on. Then she reaches out to Kira, and she's actually really honest with Kira. Credit... This is basically her only scene in the episode, uh, but credit to Nana Visitor. She sounds like like she's just, I guess, okay, and, and you can just see her attitude, okay, I'm putting, my, I'm putting up with this woman I hate because if it's a matter of state or whatever, so I'm just going to deal with this. And then, and then Adami just like breaks down and admits that she was more interested in her station, her power than her faith, and she's done the wrong. And Kira's just like, oh my God, she's admitting the truth. Kira's known this for years. But for her to admit this, for her to confess this, just, just, you can see it just kind of slaps her across the face. And then she like reaches out like, no, it's okay, it's okay. Like she all of a sudden goes from, you know, the, just the, this cold thing to, it's okay, I've got you, I've got you. One of the reasons I've heard so many people, I think, say that Kira would make a better Kai, but I'm getting off topic. So she's like, it's okay, Emissary, it's okay, we, we can, or not Emissary, excuse me, Eminence, Eminence, we can make this work, it's all right. Um... Why don't uh, any, 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 even the worst of us can be redeemed? It's interesting to hear Kira say that. Everything will be clearer once you step down as Kai. I love this. I do. I'll confess, somewhat cruelly, that I didn't want Kai Wynn to be redeemed. She's always been that absolutely despicable person to me. It just just to an extent that I just... I, I, yeah. She's not quite get-off-my-screen territory, mostly because the actress is just phenomenal, but you know, she's, she's definitely the, the Rendon Howe of this particular work for me. And she... The fact that she doesn't get it, that it doesn't even really process for her, really makes this work. No, I... I I, I can't step down. Bejor needs me. Once I've done what the prophets need, then I'll be in position to help Bejor. Bejor, it doesn't even occur to her that she can step down. And she starts, and then when it really starts to go to her, she just kind of defaults to, like, rhetoric. Like, no, I, I can do this. It'll be fine. It'll, it'll be cool. And Kira, Kira looks sad. Even the worst of us can be redeemed. 
but only if they want to be. And Kira just says, quietly, Good night, Eminence. Yeah. Meanwhile, I suppose I could wrap up. Uh, because, you know, there's this thing where she's like, I, they will rue the day I have become full villain. You know, whatever. Uh, but we cut over to Cardassia, which is the far more interesting story to me, because Damar finds out that 500,000 troops died in order to allow a weakening of the whole. Now, there's a, thing, a term called uh, cold calculus, which is basically when you stop thinking of strategy and tactics in terms of people and lives and morality and start thinking of it as an equation. It's entirely possible that the deaths of half a million Cardassian troops was actually beneficial to the war effort in some way. Truthfully, based on what we already seen about the subservience to the brain thing, I think the Cardassian extermination has already begun. Just a little quietly, rather than overtly. That's my take on it, by the way. But, uh, yeah, half a million people gone. And he's just freaking out, and Wayun just slams him down again. And Damar goes back to his station, and he's just like... And he takes the drink, drinks, looks at the mirror, pours another drink, looks at the mirror again, and then just slams the drink into the mirror. And, and you can just tell that's the screw-up moment. He has been pushed just a little bit too far. Apparently Casey Biggs loved this, because then he comes out, and it's like, all right, time to go to your execution. So, there's a Cardassian ship here, it's waiting for you. You can stay here and die, or you can trust me. Take your pick. You have an ally in Cardassia. And notice the lighting. They've rearranged it, both in terms of the position of the lights and in the way he's holding his head, so his entire face is no longer cast in shadow, as it has been for episodes now, if you're paying attention. And it's so... I have to admit, I didn't notice until I saw this scene, and I was like... And I re and I pulled up previous episodes, and yeah, sure enough, in, for like the last like five episodes, four episodes now, I've lost track. He's doing this thing in almost every scene he's in, and he's just ugh, scowling and dark and shadows. But here you can just see his entire face, and it's just ah, oh, dude, nice touch. I'm pretty sure he stops drinking at this point too. Uh, I, final thing here, I just want to mention this because Esri and Worf do have a good scene finally. Because they cut... This is the only reason I'm willing to accept the whole they have a brief fling thing. Because they don't have a fling, do they? Not, I mean, I guess they have a fling, but there's no actual romance there. And that's the point. Esri allowed herself to be Jadzia for a moment. And he allowed himself to think she was Jadzia. But for him, it was just sex for fun. And he hates himself for that. I love this. I absolutely adore this. No no insult or, or shame intended to anybody who thinks that there's nothing wrong with having sex for fun. That's fine. But Worf is a huge romantic. He says it in this episode. For me, making love is a deeply spiritual experience. In fact, I would bet money that we could probably count on one hand how many people across the two shows he has made love to. It's probably two Unless we count Ezri, in which case it is definitely three. I don't think he and Deanna ever did anything, as I've been covering over on the TNG stuff. So for him, it's something he only gives away if he really means it, if this is this deep personal act. And he just wanted to screw Ezri and pretend she was Jadzia for a bit. 
And he, the, the shame of that. There's just something awesome about that. It's a great character point. And I love the fact that the two coincide are like, are friends? You know, now that we're about to go die? Friends. I like that. Good stuff. Good stuff. As usual, each of these episodes kind of ends on a to-be-continued. So I will see you guys next week as, uh, as we continue throughout the finale of the Dominion War. Thank <laughs> you.